Hey everyone, this is Sean Friedland from Hanzo. I'm here today with AP Capaldo, and we are going to talk about Operation Varsity Blues. AP, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. For those of our listeners who may not know you, can you just give our audience a little bit of a rundown uh, who you are and your compliance background? Sure. Um, I am an attorney. I work in the global compliance space. I work as director for a big technology company. And uh, formerly, I worked as associate general counsel for a large uh, education company, managing and assisting um, with implementation of our anti-biranter corruption program and our broader compliance program. For those of our uh, listeners that aren't really familiar with Operation Varsity Blues or maybe uh, overwhelmed with all of the news happening around the world, as well as what they're doing at work to, to have all the details, I'm going to go ahead and give a, a hopefully one minute rundown of what this case is, what it means, and some of the implications to set the table for our conversation. So Operation Varsity Blues was essentially a widespread cheating scandal uh, with about 50 people that have been indicted so far by the Department of Justice, whereas um, students were either accepted into prestigious universities because their parents had paid someone, uh, bribed them to either take their SETs or ACTs on their behalf to amplify their score or to kind of misrepresent their academic and scholastic um, and athletic achievements to get a scholarship for that school. Um, so the DOJ has indicted or brought charges against around 50 people so far, including conspiracy to commit racketeering, money laundering, fraud, mail fraud, and obstruction of justice. And the people implicated so far are some well-known actresses and actors from Hollywood, which is really what uh, you know led a lot of the major headlines when this story broke, as well as SAT and ACT administrators, an exam proctor, college administrators, and even a CEO. Uh, and that CEO is William Singer, who had a company called The Key, which was essentially the operation through which all of these illegal activities kind of funneled through. And he worked with third parties uh, to either take the tests on behalf of students or funnel bribes and other kind of unethical conduct to the right people at the right universities to help these people get into the, into the schools they wanted. Um, you know, most interesting to me from my perspective and from what Hanzo does is that the Keys website is now a blank homepage with no information. So for, uh, you know, the regulatory bodies that are kind of proceeding with this case, I'm curious to know how much data they were able to capture from the website that might be relevant to the case before William or one of his co-conspirators took down some of the, some of the webpage content. And also really, you know, what's interesting to me is the sheer fact that there were so many third parties and other people involved that, you know, there's bound to be more information that breaks out from this case as the story unfolds. Um, one interesting quote, and this is from Conversant's Definitive Guide to Compliance Case Management, and it references the National Business Ethics Survey um, from 2013. And it says, compliance incident reports are rarely simple and straightforward. They often involve multiple parties and multiple types of allegations. According to the 2013 National Business Ethics Survey, two-thirds of misconduct either occurs over multiple incidents or is an ongoing pattern. And misconduct also usually involves more than one person. As the survey reported, 41% of observed misconduct was committed by multiple individuals. So... That's obviously specific to internal misconduct within corporations, but it's a perfect fit and a, you know, really aligns with what happened at these, at these academic institutions. Um, so with that being said, 
AP, uh, the University of California, UC Berkeley, Stanford, UCLA, USC, Georgetown, and Yale were just some of the institutions involved in this case. A few of them are investigating their own students right now to see if they could tie back any of what happened uh, in the years prior to this particular case. So it's interesting to think about um, academic institutions investigating their own students. But most notably, and most relevant to your history, FIU and Notre Dame are not on the list. I, I recently interviewed Ling Ling Ni, who's a compliance officer at Georgia Tech and a former compliance officer at a Fortune 500 company. And we were talking a little bit about what are the differences between a compliance program and a university and a business. And she said that, said that one of the, the key similarities between both is that I think people naturally want to be associated with organizations that they could be proud of. And it's no different for students and their alma maters. As an alma mater, as an alumnus of FIU and Notre Dame, when this news broke and you didn't see those universities among the ones in trouble for this behavior, did you feel a sense of pride? Did you feel a sense of relief? Or was it both? Yeah, I definitely think I was very uh, glad to not see their names on on any of the coverage. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's kind of, it, it's one of those things I hesitate to say that I was proud about it in the sense that um, while they weren't on the list, I, I think there shouldn't be a false sense of, of complacency or, or security in that, you know, they weren't included here. Uh, my guess is that a lot of the issues that are happening uh, or that are being uh, reported to have happened in a lot of these institutions are probably endemic uh, throughout a lot of higher education institutions. Um, but what I will say is that uh, a lot of students do choose their universities on a very unique uh, set of, of, you know, their own personal criteria. And for me, values was really important. And, you know, I went to Notre Dame Law School, which prides itself on, on educating a different kind of lawyer. And so, um, you know, to the extent that they had been named, I think it would be a huge discredit and, and would have really undermined that, that, uh, that brand uh, value that the university has. So I was very happy to see it. They're actually named in, in one of the transcripts um, in the affidavit in support of the criminal complaint alongside, I think it's Vanderbilt. Um, and I think one of the individuals saying something like, no, you can't, you can't get into Notre Dame or, or Vanderbilt. It's too difficult uh, because of some of the requirements that they had and, and how it'd be too easy to expose someone who, who was being fraudulently admitted. So I was kind of uh, happy to see that and, and glad to see that uh, if anything, it, it was shedding a positive light on the university. Uh, but again, shouldn't, shouldn't mean that there aren't uh, really important and meaningful takeaways for all universities uh, from what happened. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it kind of naturally lends itself to my next question for you. You know, I think that anytime uh, a corporate scandal happens, whether it's harassment or bribery or fraud, the corporate community kind of uses that compliance and ethics failure as a, a case study for its own internal self-reflection and to kind of analyze its own weaknesses and see, could this happen to us? Um, and did we get lucky that it hasn't yet? So, you know, how does what happened here change compliance programs and colleges and universities moving forward? And will there be a change at all? I think that's a great question um, that remains to be answered. You know, to the extent there wasn't a spotlight prior on compliance as it applies to universities and colleges, um, I think there certainly is now. And I think what's important is it's a different spotlight, right? Because we've, we've seen compliance lapses and issues in, in higher education in a different, uh, under a different lens. We've seen it, mostly you see it in athletics, right? Uh, you see a lot of universities that have positions 
for you know NCAA compliance or a compliance officer is very focused on athletics and um, other areas and and there was also a second wave of awareness with a lot of the Me Too movement, um, things that moved forward and, and created a, an awareness in terms of other ancillary areas of compliance, like safety and security, um, you know, um, diversity, inclusion, um, other things like that. But when we talk about traditional barber and corruption, I don't think that there was the focus that there is now. And if I were at a university right now as a compliance officer, I think one of the first things I would be looking at is, is how can I make some meaningful changes to my risk assessment process, right? I, I think I'd be reevaluating my risk profile as an entity or as an institution. And I don't think it's just colleges that are going to be impacted here. I think a lot of the coverage that we've seen has talked about the universities. But I haven't heard a ton about the nonprofits that were administering the standardized entrance exams that are probably uh, analyzing themselves whether there were gaps in their processes that contributed to what happened. Um, so I think we're going to see impacts there. Uh, I hope that we won't have some unintended consequences as well in terms of access to necessary accommodations for folks who genuinely need them, right, for students who, who do need accommodations based on legitimate differences in their learning. So I, I think there's going to be a whole host of, of interesting implications and hopefully some reform um, in terms of, of how these things are managed. And I think this is in addition to understanding the scope of the problem and whether there are other undetected situations, right? Because the scope of the FBI's investigation was very specific. And my guess is that they were looking at cases that they could readily prove and charge successfully. Uh, but my guess is that, you know, there are other universities that potentially have similar issues. And so I think an intelligent and thoughtful compliance officer at another university is doing the exact same introspection and saying, do I have controls that are addressing these gaps? Do I have a program that I believe is defensible in the same way that we talk about defensibility from an FCPA standpoint? Do I have a program that I feel could help prevent, mitigate, detect the kind of misconduct that we saw in these cases? And, you know, just to add to that, I think if I was part of the compliance program at a new university, I'd be doing a postmortem and I'd be asking a lot of really probing questions, starting with some of the more sort of what we understand to be the simple check the box questions and moving to more meaningful areas. So I can go into kind of a list of what those look like. Yeah, I think that's a great topic and I think that's a great idea. You know, something that I thought of that really struck me while you were speaking was I think naturally this conversation, this case, um, you know, Operation Varsity Blues, this whole kind of news cycle around it is going to raise awareness for ethics and compliance within universities um, and certainly going to cause some organizations and, and universities to reflect on their own programs and what they are or aren't doing or, or how much they are or aren't investing in that program. How long do you think it will actually take for some of these changes to actually be implemented or, or for, for some of these reforms to go into effect to mitigate this risk in the future. You know, it's really easy to, to conduct that, you know, post, uh, you know, breach or, or, or post infraction analysis and see, you know, where were those weak points and kind of identify it. Um, but to actually implement some of those changes and then measure whether or not they're working, uh, you know, isn't an overnight process from, from your perspective, um, you know, whether it's in a corporation or whether it's in this specific kind of academic setting, how long do you think it will take for some of the effects of this case to actually be implemented within a, within a university? 
That's a great question. I think um, in the short term, there are some immediate implications or, or, or actions that will probably be taken. And we've already seen that, right? You know, you've seen universities distance themselves from certain um, people who were charged. Um, you know, there were separations of employment. Um, they're very clear, right? Those are very clear messages that you're sending as an as an entity or as an institution that you you don't you know you don't support that this what this person did what, what this person allegedly did, right? Because they they were just charged at this point. Um, so I think that's a, a real tangible, quick uh, uh, change that you're seeing. I think to the extent that there are any investigations into students and and what students knew and and what their conduct may have been. Um, that'll be a, pr a pretty short-term result as well. I think what we'll see that that's going to be a longer-term impact is going back again to how some of the processes and and you know uh, controls that are implemented are are tested, are, are are monitored, and how they're ultimately identified to be effective or ineffective. I think that's going to take a little bit longer um, because again, I think the focus of how a lot of the compliance programs have been built at, at universities has not necessarily had at its core or or even in its focus bribery and corruption. I think, and Hui Chen points this out in her article, when you talk to a lot of you know universities or when you even are in the academia space, the only time uh, bribery and corruption comes up is a lot of times in the context of the FDA. And that's really a lot of universities have this perspective of, well, look, if I don't have an overseas operation, then I really don't have to worry about this. But it couldn't be further from the truth. So I think that's going to take a little bit longer. And it's also going to depend on how long uh, this is in the spotlight, how long this continues to affect the brand of certain universities. Another thing that will be really interesting is much like how we look at companies' stock prices or their valuations based on compliance lapses that have occurred that have hurt their brand, I think we're going to have to look at how the the admit the competitiveness of the admissions process or that you know the even the university's endowment changes based on what's happened right that would be very interesting if if people take the position that you know i'm not going to donate to this university because i don't support these things that have happened and i believe that they bear some responsibility and as such i'm going to withhold my support so if those things happen i think we'll see some more aggressive change but you know, it could just kind of fade as well, which which will, will which will make the change I think less less uh, immediate and less impactful. You know, that's really interesting. A lot of corporate scandals these days um, aren't just measured by the kind of regulatory infraction or the size of the fine that they'll get, but also the reputational damage. And at universities and colleges, um, especially the prestigious ones that were involved in this particular scandal, you know, reputation is such a big part of that you know, the clout of attending a specific school or university and the kind of pride and, um, you know, acclaim that comes with that. It'll be really interesting to see if their reputations get tarnished down the road. And if students that maybe hold themselves to a higher ethical standard or just, you know, don't want to diminish their achievement by attending a, a school that's brand has been tarnished a little bit, will choose to go somewhere else. I, I think it'll be really interesting to track that in the future, if the reputational damage uh, in the long term for the people uh, involved in this case. What I think is interesting, uh, and you touched on it, is that how historically a lot of compliance programs, you know, were built around regulations. And I think that shifted a lot, you know, in the, in the short term to not just what regulations we need to follow, but also the cultural implications of having an ethical organization and a strong compliance program. 
And you know, I think the conversation these days isn't just about compliance, but reactive or proactive compliance. And you know, I think in this particular instance, we're experiencing reactive compliance, right? This terrible thing happened, and now we're going to react accordingly and fix everything that was broken. Um, but you know, proactively, had the right risk management measures been in place, or had been more had more emphasis been placed on compliance in, in the past, you know, this could have potentially been stopped or been identified. Do you think anyone saw this coming? Um, I'm sure that that there were folks who might have kind of raised alarm or raised a red flag at some point and maybe were dismissed. I think that that's a very real possibility. I don't know how, you know, how tangible that might have been. It might have, it might have been more of a, it might have been more in the form of a question and not maybe what we think of as, you know, a, a whistleblower who's detected this huge fraud, right? Um, you know, it's funny when you read through, again, this affidavit and you read through the, some of the transcripts of the calls that, that the individuals involved in this were, uh, were, were, were saying, some of the things that they were saying, um, it's really interesting because a lot of them make mention of things like, oh, yeah, I, I heard from so-and-so, I heard from this company, or I heard from this individual who's on this board, or, you know, I, you know someone told me that, that you can help with X. I mean, you have to believe that there were quite a few people who knew, aside from the 50 that you talk about initially, who knew about this, right? Who knew about this racket because at the end of the day, that's what it was. There must and have been. Yeah, there must have been somebody who knew and, and, and or had reason to know, right, when we talk about reason to know. Um, but it doesn't sound like anyone really uh, was bringing it to the forefront or to the spotlight. Um, it, it would be interesting also to see the channels that the universities afforded people internally uh, to be able to report these kinds of things to the extent that they had visibility into it. Um, but if I were, if I were doing again that postmortem that we talked about earlier, I'd really be analyzing what kind of training did the staff uh, or the, the individuals that were that were involved receive, right? I mean, we can talk about whether or not it was effective, but even what what was it that they received? Did it even address these topics? How often were they trained? Um, and that's going to answer two questions for you: not just whether or not they were trained and had some background on kind of what the expectations were, what things were allowed and not allowed, which in my opinion, this is pretty obvious. Uh, this is a very obvious thing that was incorrect and was misconduct. But I think the other thing you're, you're going to be looking at if you address that issue is what kind of access did your compliance team have to, to different uh, departments and to administ uh, you know, university administrators? And, and conversely, did university administrators or other folks uh, in those organizations know about uh, the compliance resources and people who, who led compliance in the organization because that's going to obviously uh, enable you to engage people to bring forward these kinds of things. Um, and then you need to look at did the training even address the issues that occurred? When was the last time you spot checked these areas for compliance, right? Um, another thing we tend to talk about in our article is exceptions, right? And what we saw here were a lot of exceptions, folks who didn't meet criteria for certain things. Um, did anyone kind of apply a four-eyed principle to this where these escalated for enhanced review, right? They talk about these kind of committees that, that would get together and discuss some of these candidates, but, but at no point did somebody have to it doesn't sound like somebody ha had to escalate some of these except, quote unquote exceptions to a, a neutral third party within the organization to, to review these issues, right? Or to review these exceptions that were me being made. 
And the other things are what factors or aspects of the culture contributed to this issue. Were there red flags like you're mentioning? Were there blind spots where we wouldn't have even known about the red flags? What was the, the cultural permissiveness that possibly led to this? Um, who, who would have known or had reason to know? Because, you know, the other thing you have to ask yourself is, when we talk about some of the accounts that, that payments were or checks were going into, how, how many people had access to these accounts? And was that unchecked access? Was there documentation around what they could or couldn't do? So, so there's definitely a values-based analysis that needs to be that needs to be done. But there's also very simple uh, evaluation of the controls that that were in place. And then circling back to your previous question of how quickly will we see results or changes being implemented on the basis of this issue? I think a really big question you have to answer is how was I deploying my compliance resources? Was I too focused on certain areas of compliance to the complete uh, exclusion of others to the point where I created gaps, completely blind gaps um, of areas that I felt from a risk-based analysis weren't, uh, weren't as important or, or just weren't on my radar, right, in terms of my, my risk assessment. And then the last thing is very, again, very traditional perspective um, and hallmark, right, of an effective compliance program. But the other point is, is integrity and, and the hallmarks of, a compliant, of compliant behavior part of my selection and hiring process. So to the extent some of these coaches were being hired and administrators were being hired, you know, where, was, was the university looking at what is their track record from an ethics compliance perspective? Have they had issues in the past? You know, what is their, uh, what does their integrity profile look like? You know, they have, they have many of the same tools that corporations have to achieve this sort of, let's call it due diligence. And so did they do that? If they did, was there any meaningful information that was actionable or that could have, could have given uh, an indication of some of the things that happened um, or not, right? That's a question that you have to ask, I think, as you're evaluating this. Totally. And, and, you know, I think it's really interesting just the fallout of this particular case. You know, as you mentioned, so many of the historical kind of NCAA compliance violations or uh, academic compliance violations are around NCAA and kind of, you know, bribery and corruption with student athletes. I think this, um, is uh, almost the opposite of that, right? These people weren't athletes, but they were um, trying to get into universities using some of those uh, channels. And I think that everything you just mentioned from the integrity and quality of your training program to the third-party risk management processes you have in place for screening the, the vendors that you're working with to really just taking this traditional risk management approach and analysis um, and even benchmarking the, the effectiveness of your compliance program, you, you know, there are so many different components of a compliance and risk management program that are kind of embedded in the DNA of what happened here. It'll be really fascinating to see not just how these specific universities take action and fix it and correct it, and then, you know, presumably publicize what they've done to fix it in an effort to redeem some of that reputational damage and also kind of show regulators that they're taking efforts to fix what was wrong. But, you know, this could even, there's a whole marketplace of, of vendors that address these problems. Um, and I used to work for some of them. And I'm curious how they will, you know, almost reposition their services to help these universities. Um, because that is typically how uh, the business world works, right? You know, there is a problem and then somebody uh, creates a solution for it. So no, that's a really, that's a really great point. You know, it's also, it's also going to be interesting to see 
we, we've seen accountability in terms of the wrongdoers, right? Folks were charged, fired, you know, it was clear who, who was involved. But it, it's going to be very interesting to see how the universities themselves are held accountable. Um, you know, I, I don't, I haven't really researched this, but to the extent that funding could be pulled, um, you know, higher just levels of scrutiny for certain things. I mean, that'll be a very, a very interesting um, development, I think, is just to see again, um, where, where the accountability uh, continues to be uh, assessed. I think another really interesting thing is that it's a wonderful opportunity for universities to emerge as thought leaders and as the benchmark in terms of transparent and, you know, ethical uh, admissions practices, right, and, and, and just best practices and oversight uh, of, those, of those aspects of, of college, college admissions. Um, one, really, uh, one really interesting thing that I've always wondered and, and that I've always seen um, in academia and in, in institutions of higher learning is the fact that there's this wealth of internal resource that you can tap into, right? You've got law professors, you've got ethics professors, you have so many amazing sort of inter interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary uh, institutional resources that you can tap into and work towards crafting a program and, and curating a culture that's aligned with the university's values and ensures measurable improvements in compliance um, that result in a decrease in conduct, right? Because you have people hiring professors as consultants to enhance their compliance programs. So you would think that universities can kind of harness that resource um, to do some introspection and to develop some best practices from the inside out uh, versus kind of what it looks to be now, which is sort of just responding to regulation or just responding to what's perceived as um, the, the latest spotlight on, on certain practices. I, I love that idea. And I, and I, I love that, you know, sometimes you don't realize the resources you have that are right under your nose um, until it's a little too late. But, you know, to your point, for a lot of compliance officers from, from, from the conversations I've had with them, you know, collaboration and transparency across departments within your own company is often a pretty big challenge. And I think, you know, to your point, this is a huge opportunity for universities to kind of collaborate internally among those different departments and, you know, teams of experts to really solve some of these problems. When it comes to really, you know, using this story uh, and, you know, using it is the wrong word, but really applying some of the lessons from this story to a compliance program as a corporate compliance officer, right? If you're a Fortune 1000 global compliance officer and you're, you're managing training and, and doing all these different things within your own company and trying to embed an ethical culture, you know, how would you use this story to kind of... Um, bring some relevant current events to, to your organization to embed some of those lessons that you try to train on or, or make the case for more funding and the importance of compliance from your, from your board, right? What, are there any opportunities that you see from this story that could be really applied uh, universally to a compliance officer? Absolutely. I think, uh, I think a lot of it isn't just about resource or, or rather about how much resource. I think a lot of it is thoughtfulness into how you're deploying your resources, right? Because what it boils down to at the end of the day is that it would almost seem like nobody was asking the hard questions. You know, as far as we can tell, nobody was meaningfully spot checking or looking for signs that these 
things were occurring. Nobody was reviewing the documentation that was provided in any meaningful way, um, which only made those committing the misconduct more confident and more brazen and increased the, the scale of what was occurring. Um, on the parent side, there was a lot of rationalization going on, right? It was a lot of, you know, well, I, I'm okay doing this because my child won't know, or, or you know, the, the student that's taking the exam won't know, and and it, you know, they're going to get into university, and it's going to ultimately be better for them. I can only imagine, right, the thought process that went into that. I think another really interesting takeaway is that there's a little bit of an unsung hero in this situation. You know, in again, in the affidavit, a few uh, counselors, uh, high school counselors, seem to have been questioning. Um, some of the submissions that were being uh, that were being uh, turned in for uh, admission in admission packages. Um, so inquiring, you know, how is this person an athletic recruit when we don't even have a crew team, or we don't, you know, these students, as far as I know, have never participated in crew. Um, and specifically expressing concerns that the applications may have contained misleading information. So I'd love to know. What happened with those counselors? Were, were their concerns heard? Were they just simply shut down because, you know, they were given an explanation and that explanation was enough to close out that, that you know, that inquiry or, or just uh, kind of silence that concern? Um, or worse, was there pressure uh, on, on counselors because maybe these parents were big donors of these high schools? And so any concerns that were brought forth were, were quickly quieted, right? Who knows? This is all, you know, speculation. But I think those are some interesting uh, takeaways that could be powerful lessons that are easily transferable to other industries. I think, that's, I, I think, think that's a great point, and, and not to interrupt, but I, I do think that's really interesting in terms of whose voice gets listened to. When is a concern relevant or valid enough for us to stop what we're doing and really reevaluate or question something? And I think to a certain extent today, um, you know, part of that is resolved by social media, right? And it's, if you're not going to listen yep. to me when I'm telling you something is wrong, I'm going to go tell everyone that something's wrong, and then we're going to have a bigger problem on our hands. And, you know... Um, We've certainly seen a lot of instances over the past year or two um, of, you know, people using social media as a platform to speak up and blow the whistle when their internal programs or the systems in place to do that uh, officially, you know, ignored them or didn't take it seriously enough. Yep. Yep. I think that's right. And I think the other thing that's interesting um, from, from a higher education standpoint is that while it's definitely a new perspective and a new side of the, the prism that is bribery in an academic context, it, it's far from being new, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, we've seen cases and instances of bribery and misconduct in the collegiate athletic, uh, you know, athletics context. You know, in 2017, there was a college basketball coaches that were charged with various, you know, wire fraud and bribery and, and conspiracy offenses, and they were taking cash bribes from, from athlete advisors, um, like financial advisors and the like. So, I think the fact that it's in the U.S., right, and, and in this uh, sort of uh, education context, um, I think that's, that's also a huge thing to, to, to harness, and the fact that it made this huge splash, right, um, because it really brings home that at the end of the day, there is no way to, to quote-unquote, safely isolate or disassociate yourself from, from the risk of bribery and corruption or of misconduct. It can happen anywhere. Enforcement is a reality, so you can't, you can't suddenly rationalize or, or think to yourself, you know what, I'm not going to focus on this risk because the chances of, of enforcement are slim to none. Um, and, I, and I'd imagine that that was very deliberate as well 
on, on behalf of the enforcement agencies. So, you know, I think there are very real implications for, for any company's brand and, and, and ultimately for their bottom line uh, for this case. But, but in particular, I think for institutions of higher learning, this is something that, of course, hit, hit home. And, and the wealth of information, right? So the amount of documentation that's been put out um, and just the size of it, there's just so much material that, that it's, it's kind of exciting, right? I'm having like a compliance nerd moment because there's just so much material that you could turn into training and, and it's so meaningful and everyone's hearing about it because it's been in the headlines. I completely agree. It'll be very interesting to follow this case over the months and honestly, probably years to see the short-term and long-term fallout. Uh, AP, we're almost out of time. If people want to reach out to you to you know, talk more about this or anything else related to compliance, how could they reach you? Um, LinkedIn. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter and uh, via email as well. I'm happy to share my contact information. What is your, uh, what's your Twitter handle for the, for the Twitter users out there? It's at FCPA Girl. How fitting. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Maybe we'll, we'll chat about this more in the future. Until then, you know, uh, good luck out there fighting the good fight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me and look forward to it.